I want to turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, and reading from verses 12, and then we're going to read together Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall, and shall neither drink wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn, if you have a Bible, you can underline that, turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You can underline that, prepared for the Lord. We're preparing right now for a move of God. God's already moving, but in a sense, we're still in that place of waiting. Now, Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, when John suddenly bursts on the scene here. Luke's Gospel, chapter 3 and verse 1. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius of Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, Herod being the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Arturia, and region of Traconinus, and Lysanias, Tetras of Abilim. Now, I'm just going to do some study in Greek places there. But while Annas and Cephas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went all the region around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And as it was written in the book, the words of Isaiah the prophet saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him saying, what shall we do then? And he answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to the one who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. And then the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, What shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. Now, as the people were in expectation, all the reasons, all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, and John answered, saying, I indeed baptize with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal straps I'm not worthy to lose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, but the chap it will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. Here, John suddenly comes on the scene. He bursts out onto the scene, and he says, he's a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Now, he doesn't come as a somebody or a something. In fact, what's intriguing to me about John, he doesn't claim to be anybody. He says, are you Elijah? He says, no. Are you a prophet? 
No, he could have went back to his prophecy and said, listen, I had this angelic visitation. My dad met God, God, the angel Gabriel, in the temple. And he was dumb for a couple of days, and then he wrote down John on a piece of paper, and suddenly his mouth opened up. He could have went on about that. My dad had a prophecy regarding me, but he said, no, I'm not Elijah. Although it was spoken of him that he would come in the power of Elijah to turn the people to God. And so he didn't claim to be anybody. He didn't claim to be the Christ. In fact, John the Baptist just said, I am a voice crying in the wilderness. And I believe that that's the repositioning that God wants to remind us as a church tonight, that we're not anybody. We're not a someone or a something. We're not going to get to God, and we're not going to say, we are here, Kensington Temple, look at the greatest church in the whole universe. No, that's not going to happen. John the Baptist burst out of the seams and said he's a voice crying in the wilderness. We are a voice to this city. We are a voice of influence to this city. We are salt to this city. And here he is saying, I am a voice. Now, when he burst on the scene and he saw Jesus, his reaction to Jesus was quite simple. He said, look, the Lamb of God that was slain for the sins of the world. Now, Bruce said it this morning. He said, when Mary had the encounter with Elizabeth and she was pregnant with Jesus, John leapt in the womb and and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And I believe that something happened to John as a baby, something of God, something of the anointing. Now, It's hard to explain, isn't it, when you sense what the Holy Spirit is doing. We have a general sense. We grow in that sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. But there are those people in your life who you have this divine connection with, and when you're around them, you suddenly just feel encouraged in the things of God. Built up. Last year in June, I spent a whole day in Germany with one of my friends who basically came to the back of the church, not KT, but in the Northeast, came to the back of the church and asked us, Do you want to believe in Jesus? And I arrogantly said, well, I'm a Christian anyway. My name's Christian. I'm from a Christian family. And he pressed on not to be discouraged. And there was four of us there from a little town called Spennymoor. Well, you don't know where that's at. It's just six miles from Durham where Bruce went to university. And uh, just a small town. And we were just there, four of us. And he wasn't to be deterred. And he said, listen, why don't we all pray together? So he prayed with us to receive Christ that day, and I prayed a prayer like this. I want to recommit my life to the Jesus of the Bible. I don't want to recommit my life to religion. And it seems to me that John was not religious. And so there was a connection there between me, he's called Mark, and him that day. He invited me around his house, and we watched some great preaching on the TV. And he left me there as I soaked up the Word of God. And as I went through my life, he's been there on and off. He's went and studied. And I spent the day with him. I want to tell you, as we talked about the Bible, we talked about vision, we talked about dreams, we talked about the things of God, there was a connection there. And I remember coming back, and I was saying to Tori, listen, that's the best I've felt in ages. What was that? It was the leaping of God. Something that was encouraging my faith, something that was causing me to get back or to remind me where I should be going. That was John. He was addicted to Jesus. And when he saw Jesus, they said, look, the Lamb of God who is slain for the sins of the world. And he saw Jesus again, and he said, I must decrease, and he must increase. Often that's the opposite to everything that we're taught, isn't it? I must increase, and Jesus, or somebody else, must decrease. See, John the Baptist had this amazing ministry. He broke onto the scene. He was baptizing. If you do some history research, many scholars say that he was baptizing maybe up to 200,000 to 500,000 people, just baptizing them. People going through the Jordan, baptizing, baptizing. 
I remember being shocked when Wynne Lewis came into the tank, um, I think, and, and just saw him when he was retired, he came into the tank and he was baptized. I, I think I saw pictures of him baptizing people, but he was baptizing people by himself. By himself. And now we're a little hassled, aren't we, now, because we have to get two people to baptize some heavy people. So John the Baptist baptizing people himself, determined just baptizing so many hundreds of thousands of people, that was his ministry. He burst onto the scene and he was a voice crying in the wilderness. But he could have said to himself, you know what, I'm just as good as Jesus. I had this prophecy. There's this angelic visitation. And Jesus also had this angelic visitation from God. Uh, and he could have said, well, I'm the same as Jesus. Me and Jesus are the same, aren't we? I'm going to start my global ministry, John the Baptist International Ministries, and Jesus can start his ministry as well. We'll write books together. We'll travel together. It'll be me and Jesus at the hip because we're related and we're cousins. And we know they were cousins. But he didn't. He said, you know what? I'm going to decrease and he is going to increase. And it seems he, he takes a back seat. He takes a back seat. And he pushes Jesus into the forefront. Now here... He says it in Luke's gospel, chapter 3. He says here, I indeed baptize with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal straps I'm not worthy to loose. So he gets himself into perspective. Listen, I am nothing in comparison to he who is to come. I am nothing in comparison to he who is to come. When I was training to and believing that I would become a professional footballer, there was talk uh, at our school team always about going into the changing rooms of those who play football. And we would clean their boots. Uh, and we would dress up all the dressing room and get them ready. And one of my friends actually had the privilege of being at a football club and doing that, cleaning them and just serving the football team. That's exactly what John the Baptist is saying. See, my ministry is just to clean the boots. My ministry is just to clean the boots. But he goes a little further. He says, listen... I'm not even honored, I'm not even worthy to clean Jesus' boots. That's his perspective. I must decrease and he must increase. One thing you notice about John the Baptist is that his, he just freely gave away his disciples. You can read that in John. Andrew suddenly hears about Jesus. He's following John and he's been following baptizing people. And he goes to Jesus and he recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. And suddenly Andrew goes and gets Simon Peter and he gets him and he brings him to Jesus. And Jesus says to him, you're Simon Bar-Jonah and you shall be called Stone and you shall be called Peter. And there's an encounter there. And what happens here, there is no argument and there is no debate with John the Baptist. John the Baptist doesn't come in and say, hey, Jesus, you're nicking my people here. Jesus, you've nicked my disciples. Jesus, bring them back. I want them in my cell group. I want them in my team. I want them in my church. There's no debate there because John knows that Jesus is greater than him. That's his perspective. He goes into the background and he brings Jesus into the foreground. Now, Peter and Andrew, we know, formed the bedrock, didn't they, of Jesus' team with John and James. They were at the forefront of Jesus' team. So John the Baptist is just releasing people. He's releasing people. So he goes out and he says, he's a voice. He's a voice. Now, he says he's a voice in the wilderness. Now, I don't know about you, but nobody wants to be in the wilderness, do they? People complain about the wilderness. During the prophetic weekend, Colin was encouraging us that we could overcome in the wilderness and that Jesus overcame by faith in the wilderness. 
And I remember Colin at one of our primary meetings, and he, he was saying, you, you overcome by faith. If we're going to, if God is challenging us to overcome. And when we overcome, we'll have the anointing to deal with the devil in our lives. See, when we bow to fear, fear will rule us and reign us. And here in Luke 3, it says there's rulers. There is rulers in Rome. And the people there were ruled and governed by Rome. They were under oppression. They weren't free to go where they wanted to go. They weren't free to travel Europe. There was no global economy. There wasn't like they could get on an airplane and travel where they wanted. They were hemmed in. They were hemmed in by Rome. They were hemmed in by the Roman soldiers. They were hemmed in by the belief of Rome and the demonic system of Rome. Secondly, they were also hemmed in by the high priests. They couldn't go as they pleased. They had to go to the temple. They had to go through ceremonial washing and all the rules of the Old Testament. And they were not free. And John bursts onto the scene and says, listen, it's free grace for everybody. All you have to do is be baptized, repent of your sin, and you can have forgiveness. Because one mightier than I is coming. Jesus who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And this is a turning point. See, without John the Baptist's preparation, Jesus was not able to come. Elijah needed to come first. Now, why did Elijah need to come first? Well, it says here, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Now, none of us like to prepare the way. I'll give an illustration of this. I was driving home to Newcastle on Friday and I was petrified by a sign. And what was that sign? Junction 23 to Junction 25 is closed. I was petrified. Why was I petrified? Because when I get to Junction 23, I've now got to go around a B road or an A road. I've got to follow that road all the way, miles out of the way. I have some sort of detour away and I may or may not get on to the M1 depending on what happens. Now, you can see things from one perspective. You can be irritated. Oh, my God, there is a detour. There's a closed road. But you know what? When you start to prepare a road, there has to be closures. The road needs to be fixed. The road needs to be expanded. I was doing some research into the M25, and I spoke on this uh, when I spoke on M16, and I noticed that there was going to be a road called M16, and it was going to be from South Mims all the way to Dartford, this road. And they were excited about the plans. And they were going to dig up this road all the way to Dartford and expand it, this little M16 road, just from South Mims to Portus Bar was going to be expanded. And then somebody else came with a bigger vision. And they said, forget that. We're going to have an orbital road that orbits around London, a circular road. It's going to be called the M25. And if you do some research, which you may want to do tonight, you'll see some of the pictures, how they were digging up through farms, through people's houses, compulsory purchase, and they were digging up the road, and they were providing this space in 1975 for the M25. Well, how much irritation would that have caused? Digging up your field, digging up your yard. Maybe you couldn't get the bus. The bus stop was moved to the other side. A lot of irritation. But sometimes God needs to prepare our hearts first and he needs to remove some roadblocks in our lives. He needs to remove some attitudes in our lives. And maybe it is that we're not even ready at the moment for a Jesus move. RT was here speaking about the revival of the coming move is going to be the fear of the Lord. Now, we could say amen to that, can't we? But I'm not sure if I'm even ready for the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. What, when we read in the Old Testament where people fall down and they die. Where they fall down into the fear of the Lord. Now that's one perspective of the fear of the Lord. 
But this fear of the Lord is going to be a move of righteousness, of right standing with God. Well, that comes right across our sinful life. And right now, in, in religious terms, yeah, we're saved by grace, and, but many of us just live as we please and we do what we want. But there's going to be a great sense of the fear of the Lord and there's going to be a, a raising of righteousness. And so there's going to be some preparation that needs to take place in our life. And this is the preparation. He says, every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill shall be brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways shall be smooth. In Hosea, it talks about breaking up your fallow ground. And this is the message that John brought. He said, it's time for repentance. Nobody likes the word repentance because it's an old word, but it simply means to change your mind or to change your direction, to change your course. And I, in April, I had the chance to go to Toronto for a week. And there was a meeting with a lot of revivalists and Lou Engel and Heidi Baker and a few other people. And Reinhard Bonga was there, a lot of people. To be honest, I wasn't going just to be part of the conference and jump on the revival bandwagon. I was actually this year in January... I said to God, I want to pitch my tent this year. I want to set some weekends away where I pray and I spend the day with you and I just spend time in your presence, writing things down, listening to you and, and trying to chart my course about where I'm going, what I'm doing in the future and what evangelistic things that God has, has for my life. And so I, I went away with some of the LCC North guys and sought God. I went away for a couple of days and then I saw this Toronto and everyone's talking about this move of God and this outpouring. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go to Toronto. I'm going to just soak up the atmosphere there. I'm going to spend time in a hotel, and I'm going to seek God there. And so I decided that I would spend some time praying in the hotel, not go to the sessions, and other times I would go to the sessions because really my heart wasn't to go to the conference. My heart was to meet with God. And when you set yourself agenda, sometimes you can just get caught up in a conference mentality. I'll give, give an an example of this. There was people queuing up outside trying to get in. But we know how that goes when Christians are queuing up outside, everyone pushing one another, everybody jumping the queue, well, you know, everybody barging one another like a rugby match. But that's hardly preparation for revival, is it? You know, so I said to myself, yeah, I'll do, I'll do that and I'll sacrifice, I'll be in the queue, I'll go through the process. And then I just said, you know what, God, I'm not going to be a part of this conference mentality because my aim is to meet with you. So whether I'm at the back of the church, at the front of the church, on the floor, it doesn't matter to me. What's more important to me is the glory of God. What's more important to me is I take one word away from this conference, something that's going to reshape the future of my life. This determination to meet with God. And it's this word repentance, which means a change of direction or a change of course. And it may mean tonight that you're off course. It may mean that you're on course, but I would say the majority of us and not as on course as we want to be in the things of God. And on the first day, I had this dream. Now, I didn't ask for this dream, something I've been thinking about and praying about and seeking God. And then suddenly, I was driving down the M1 in this dream. I was driving down the M1. I was driving down this motorway. Now, as I was driving down, I hit this flood. And this flood, my car started to spin out of, out of course. And it was just spinning and spinning and spinning. And then the left hand of the car set alight. And I thought, oh my God. And then the car stopped. I got the family out, put them to the side. And then I remember thinking in the dream, oh my God, all the things I've been writing down, all the words I've received from God, all the things I've been praying about, they're in the car. I've got to get them out of the car. So I went, grabbed my bag out of the car, 
grabbed it quickly, and then I noticed there was a, in a bag, there was a baby crying. I don't know why the baby was there, but just leave that there as part of the dream. And I grabbed the baby, grabbed my bag, and I got out of there. Suddenly, I was transported into another vehicle, traveling in a completely different direction. This vehicle was larger, and it was traveling, traveling at speed, and I was just content with the family. And then I had a thought, my God, what happened to the fire and that car? I should call the fire brigade. And I was transported in another part of the dream saying, hey, don't worry, your neighbor's sorted out, it's on his yard, he's fixed everything, so just move on. And I thought, oh, what a strange dream. I've come to seek God, and I believe that there's turning points in our lives. And this dream was about a turning point. I was going in one direction, and I span around, and I went in completely in a different direction. And God wants to change us from the inside out. He wants to remove some things and change us. And this year is a turning point. Now, I wouldn't have thought that it was specifically related to me or the church. And I was trying, you always figure out what dreams mean. And then I picked up a book, Preparing for the Glory. Bruce gave me this book, the one on John Arnott, John and Carol Arnott. And I think it's chapter 9 or chapter 8. It talks about the warning. And she had a dream. And I won't go into the dream that she had, but as she got a dream in the middle of the night, she felt that she was awakened to God and she should go to the church and she should open the church and she should preach on a specific message. And as she told about the dream, she said this, she believed that God woke her up and gave her the dream because God is going to bring a course direction to the church. And I read that underlined. I thought, my course direction, that's exactly the kind of dream that I had the night before. That God wants to correct where we're going. God wants to correct what we're doing. And I believe tonight what God wants to correct, he wants the apostles to be apostles. He wants the prophets to be prophets. He wants the evangelists to be evangelists, the pastors to be pastors, and the teachers to be teachers. He wants the church to fully function. That's exactly what Colin has been saying over the years, that we believe that we're a fully functioning church. How are we going to fully function? If people are in different places, in different positions, doing different things, and Good things, mind you, but not necessarily the things they should be doing or operating the way they should be operating. So we need to pray as a church and say, God, we believe you that you'll raise up all these ministries. Now, interestingly enough, the man that was sent by God, John, that word sent is the word apostolos, which is the word apostle or sent one. And I believe that God wants to do that. The apostle, what does he do? He prepares the ground. He breaks up the ground. He prepares the ground. And Colin's given this illustration in church where church is like piles of different things all over the place. So we've got a pile over here. That's where the evangelists do their thing. We've got a pile over here. That's where the pastors do their thing. We've got a pile over here where all the prophets do their thing. How many people enjoyed the prophetic prosperity where we were prophesying at the conference? That was awesome. And so there's nothing like when the prophetic river is flowing, but what happens is everybody is doing their thing and they're doing it really well. The prophets, excellent. The evangelists, excellent. People are getting saved, whether it's on the street or in the church. Everyone's doing excellent, but we're just simply not working together. Working together. So the apostle comes in and he, and he says, right, you do that, you do that. Let's all build this house together because each person has a, a specific function so that the house is built. We work together. And one of the things that was said at the revival conference in Toronto is that this phrase, the emergence of convergence. So converging everything together, all the streams of revival, the prophetic streams, the evangelistic streams, Heidi Baker and all that revival stuff and all the streams you can think of coming together 
for a massive tsunami of the things of God. There's going to be a massive pouring out of the Spirit of God. And if there's going to be a massive outpouring of the Spirit of God, then it makes sense that all people would start to work together in what they're doing. And we've seen in the 90s and, and past the year 2000, these sporadic churches all over London. But you know what? These churches are great, and thank God for growth, but everybody needs to start working together. That can only happen by God shifting some things, moving up, bulldozing out some stuff, and starting to lay the foundation of a fresh move of God. It says here, bear fruits in verse 8, worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And I'll finish with this tonight. I was praying and over all the things that have been happening, just to me personally. And God spoke to me. And he spoke to me this verse. He said, don't put your confidence in Abraham. Don't put your confidence in Abraham. For I'm able to raise up sons or children to Abraham from the very stones. Now, what was happening here, the religious people, the Pharisees, were putting their confidence in the Old Testament and their Pharisaical way of living and the law, and they were getting their identity from the law and their religious things. And John the Baptist says, listen, don't put your confidence in these things. Now, legacy is important. So think about Eldon Corsi, who opened the church. Very, very pastorally gifted guy. Grew the church to 500 people. Awesome, pastoring, caring, raised up leaders, and many people flourished during that time. And then when came an evangelistic, bit more like John the Baptist, an apostolic kind of guy, releasing everybody into ministry like a bit of a whirlwind, somebody said, came into the church, and the church suddenly grew from 500 to something like four or 5,000, and everything was, yes, plant, 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 go, 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 go. Everything was raising up, and we know how win, win was tough. And that was his gift. And then Colin took over the church. And many more churches and ministries were planted. I think at one point, the church was 17,000 people under Colin's leadership right across the city. All these people uniting together to reach the city for God. You see, our legacy is important. So Eldon, he's important. Wynn is important. Colin is important. And everybody is important who's been raised up during that time. But we can't just put our confidence in that. And God said to me, listen, the most important position in the kingdom of God, there's nothing higher in the kingdom of God than being a son of God. Than being a son of God. There's no higher position in the kingdom of God than being a son of God. See, that's where we get our identity in God. So it's fine to say tonight, isn't it? If we just have the emergence of convergence, everybody uniting together, but it's not just that. It's not just all streams uniting together. It's why we unite that's also important. Why are we uniting? Are we uniting because we're sons of Abraham? Because we have some legacy? Are we uniting because we have some axe to grind or something or an agenda? No. We are going to unite and we unite on one thing and one thing only. And that word is Christ. Amen? We unite on Christ. See, we can't have unity without Christ. I think it was uh, one of the quotes of the Salvation Army guy, that in the last days, there'll be religion without Christ. So it's, what is that? A social club. Let's just have a great social gathering with worship, nice offering talk, and a short sermon, and then we'll have loads of food afterwards, and it'll be great. We'll call it the church. 
See, that's not the church. The church is where Christ is at the center, amen? And for Christ to be at the center, he needs to be at the center of my life, and he needs to be at the center of your life. Our identity is not based on Abraham. God bless Abraham, the father of faith, and we teach on that, justification, and all the things that are important in the scriptures, but we don't get our identity from Abraham. We get our identity from who we are in Christ Jesus. We're adopted into the family of God because. What's the because? The because is because of Christ, because of what Christ did on the cross, and how Christ rose again on the third day, and how we're being brought close because of Christ. So identity is in Christ. So he says, listen, my focus, John the Baptist's focus is Christ. His focus was Christ. His reason for living was Christ. The reason he said, I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. I'm going through this season of preparation. Valleys shall be filled in and mountains shall be brought low. You should repent and be baptized. And he baptized people. He challenged the religious status quo for what? One reason to say, I baptize with water, but one mightier than I is coming. Who is that? Jesus. He was all about Jesus. And I believe that as a church, our focus is Jesus. Amen? And our focus should be Jesus. And in fact, for that to happen, all of us personally need to take that as a word from God. And say, how am I introducing Jesus into my daily world? For me, my challenge is, amidst all the kids that we have right now, and early mornings and late nights, and trying to get them to bed, just having space to pray. So in January of this year, I said, I'm going to use the spare room. That's going to be a prayer room. And I'm going to try at 6.45 every morning to go in the room, switch the light on, and just begin to pray. What I do is I switch the light on, and I kneel down, put a pillow down, and I kneel down. And it doesn't matter to me what I do. I could fall asleep in that prayer room. It doesn't matter to me. Because at least I'm in the prayer room. Hallelujah. I've started. I've done something. Now, more or less, if I get in the prayer room, I'll start praying and God's presence will come and I'll receive something specific from God. But certainly what's not going to happen if I don't go into the prayer room, if I don't make space for God, if I don't prioritize God, nothing's going to happen. And so that's what I'm trying to do. And that's me trying to put Jesus at the center of my life. I'll pray at night. I'll pray during the day. But that's my most important moment. Well, go into the room, kneel down and pray. So I want us to pray right now. Let's just bow our heads in prayer. I want you to think tonight about John the Baptist. I want you to think about his reason for living. I want you to think about the comments I've made tonight about him. He never went on about his angelic visitation. He never went on about who he was. All he went on about was who Jesus was. His entire ministry was given to prepare for the Messiah, to prepare for Christ. And when Christ came, he just said, hey, it's time for him to take over. I must decrease and he must increase. So I want to ask you tonight, before we move into a time of ministry and prayer, how can you begin to decrease and how can Christ begin to increase? What changes can you make? Can you can there be a course correction in your focus? Can there be a change of coordinates? In Revelation, it says the elders worshipped him 
bowed down, casting down their crowns before him. Lord, tonight we cast down all of our crowns and cast down all of our positions and cast down all the things that are in the way, the mountains, the valleys, the crooked places, and we give them to you right now. Ask the Lord, Lord, how can I decrease? How can you increase? I've got one word for you tonight to think about. Intimacy. Relationship. The intimacy of relationship. John longed to be with Christ. He longed to magnify Christ. He longed to glorify Christ. He longed to lift up Christ. He longed to spend time with Christ. When Jesus came to be baptized, John said, you know what, I need to be baptized by you. His focus was always Christ. His focus is always Christ. Lord Jesus, I ask you, Father God, that on the inside, there will be a turning, a change, a reprioritizing. And we say tonight, Lord, in these meetings, we've, we've had some great meetings. People have fell under the power. People have been healed. People have shouted, people have cried, people have wept, people have done a lot of things. But Lord, in these few moments, we're asking you for a heart change. We're asking you for a redirection of our hearts to be based on you. During this moment, just ask God to forgive you if there's anything the Holy Spirit brings up right now. Just say, God, take that stuff away, Lord. Take those obstacles away, Father. And those of you who've been frustrated with road closures and delays regarding the promises of God, or God hasn't answered your prayers yet, well, say to the Lord, you know, Lord, if it's a God-ordained roadblock, and if you are preparing the road in my life that Jesus would walk on that road and visit me, then I'm happy with that. I'm happy that you'll fix the road in my life. I'm happy that you're saying to me tonight, hey, there's some fixing needed. That's why I haven't poured out my spirit upon you yet. That's why Christ hasn't revealed himself in all of his glory yet. There's some fixing needed. Some holes in that road needs to be fixed and replastered and re gone over with that pitch so that road is smooth, that when Christ comes, he can walk on a smooth road. There's going to be no hindrance. He'll come straight into your heart, straight into your life, straight into your world. And the dreams that God has given you, well, they'll just, they'll happen. They'll happen because Christ, Christ has come. And I believe that we're in a season of preparation. This year has been a, a year of preparation. And we're hitting turning points. We're hitting things that are shifting, things that are changing. And it might not be visible because a lot of our emphasis has been on the visible and has been on the external. But I believe that what God wants to say through this message is that he wants to work on the internal. He wants to change the internal. And as he changes the internal aspects of your heart and he changes and you allow him to change you, then there'll be automatic changes on the external. There'll be greater worship. There'll be greater preaching. 
There'll be greater miracles. There'll be greater anointing on the evangelism. The cell groups will grow because of the internal work of the Holy Spirit. So allow God to work on you internally. Psalmist said it like this, Search me, O God, if there be any offensive way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. John's ministry was all about repentance, which is the turning. Father, Father, come Lord. Come Lord. Come Lord, afresh into our lives. 